Hi, I'm Awista Ayub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Sean Osei Uwusu, a Class of 2021 National Fellow. Sean is a Presidential Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School, where his research and teaching focuses on criminal law, social inequality, and the legal profession. He was born and raised in Bronx, New York, and received his JD and PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. During his fellowship year, he will work on a manuscript titled The People's Champ, Legal Aid from Slavery to Mass Incarceration, which is under contract with Harvard University Press. The book uses archival research, court documents, oral histories, and interviews to highlight the role of legal aid organizations and longstanding struggles for racial justice. Sean, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you very much. So to start off, can you just frame the topic for us? What what do you hope to accomplish over the course of writing this book, but also your personal interest in this topic as well? Great. So I'm working on uh, this book project, as well as a series of related articles about the history and contemporary landscape of legal aid organizations and public defender offices. So these are organizations that provide legal services to poor people who end up in civil courts and in criminal courts and can't afford an attorney. So when we think about legal aid, we typically think primarily about class and poverty. And that's certainly right. But part of what my book project and the articles that I'm writing are attempting to do is show how, um, as you mentioned, these organizations are central to struggles for racial justice. So whether we're talking about abolitionist societies that provided legal aid to Blacks escaping slavery in the 1800s and the white abolitionists that helped them, whether we're talking about early legal aid societies in the 1900s that were concerned primarily with Southern and Eastern Europeans who were understood as not fully white, or the current legal aid organizations that developed in the 1960s by way of the war on poverty and now provide legal assistance to Black, Latinx, and Asian Americans in big cities, as well as poor whites and Native Americans in rural areas. Part of what I'm trying to do is show the role these legal aid organizations have played in mitigating racial inequality. And so these days, these organizations are helping keep people out of jail, helping them get access to public benefits, helping them not lose their homes or their children, and providing a bunch of services that I don't think get enough attention in mainstream conversations about American policy. So part of the project is around a certain kind of historical recovery, but also part of it is trying to shine some light on areas of American social and penal policy that I don't think get enough attention in the mainstream media. And can you tell me a little bit more about your own personal interest in this topic? Sure. So I got interested in this, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm from the Bronx, New York, and I got interested in this in part due to kind of like general interest in legal inequality that was in part informed by some of the things that I saw growing up. So people struggling with immigration systems, struggling with public benefits, enmeshed in the criminal justice system. And, And one thing that I found or intuitively knew is that lawyers were working on this. And so this project actually emerged when I was in grad school working on my dissertation. And I was really interested in just the kind of 
current landscape of legal aid and upon doing some historical research, uncovered some fascinating insights that I thought were relevant to contemporary conversations around law, inequality, poverty, uh, racial discrimination, sexism, concerns around disability and mental health. And so it felt like legal aid and public defenders were the perfect entry point for thinking about some of these larger questions that scholars struggle with, politicians struggle with, but most importantly, that shape people's everyday lives and experiences. So Sean, one of the goals of your project is to challenge the traditional renderings of legal aid today. So can you talk more about you know, how it's understood today or how people view it and what ways does it need to change? And it, what, if anything, is working within the system? So I would say, so I'd say a couple of things. I think one is outside of the legal community and the people who are able to obtain le- legal services, I think legal aid, both on the criminal side and the civil side, is somewhat understood as not consequential. And so I think the general public has this understanding of public defenders as being these lawyers who are plea bargain compliant, don't do a good job, that are inferior to privately retained attorneys. And I think on the civil side, a lot of research is showing that you know, people don't even really understand the work that civil legal aid attorneys do. So these are the people helping people with housing, public benefits, consumer protection issues. And so I think, I think in the kind of general population, legal aid attorneys aren't really precisely understood for what's often the excellent and important work that they're doing. Uh, they're misunderstood as being lawyers that are incompetent, notwithstanding the fact that Uh, They're coming from the best law schools. They're graduating at the top of their classes. They're making huge financial sacrifices to do this work as opposed to work in corporate law settings. So I would say that generally they're either misunderstood um, as not being effective lawyers or just generally not considered. In terms of um, what I would say is working well, I think that from my uh, engagement with legal aid attorneys, from my knowledge with the history, knowing the various constraints that they encountered, I think on the civil and criminal legal aid side, I think attorneys are doing a good job notwithstanding the constraints that they're facing. The, the biggest one is just being underfunded. On the civil and on the criminal side, legal aid offices are underfunded and dwarfed when compared to in the criminal side, prosecution, police, other areas of court administration, and on the civil side, when compared to other areas of the welfare state, so healthcare, education, social security. And so in both contexts, uh, they're severely underfunded, yet really doing important work that's helping uh, mitigate Uh, poverty for people who are fortunate to benefit from their services. And I think when I, to your question about what needs to change, I would say, I would say besides um, better funding for legal aid organizations, I think that this legal aid needs to become more of an issue in electoral politics. And that's really one of the bigger goals of the project. Most politicians don't have explicit 
policy positions on legal aid when they're running for office, whether it's civil legal aid or criminal legal aid, despite the fact that on the civil side, these attorneys are helping people get access to social services. And on the criminal side, these attorneys are helping people stay out of jail. Uh, and so I would say the biggest thing that needs to change is that legal aid needs to become more of an issue uh, in terms of electoral politics and legislation. So in terms of the history of legal aid, you said that many trace its origins to the New York Legal Aid Society that began in 1876, but the history far preceded that time. So can you tell us more about why that history is often left out and what your book is hoping to to actually do in terms of ensuring that the history is properly accounted for? Sure. So there are a bunch of reasons um, for why this history is left out. Felice Batman, who is a scholar at Chicago Kent Law School, has written an important book um, that shows how you know, the, the story, the, legal, the New York Legal Aid Society story is actually off by more than a decade and shows how beginning in the early 1860s, legal aid organizations were developed by and for uh, women. And she traces, she traces the explanation to, and I think she has it right, to the ways that this important book called Justice in the Poor that came out in 1919 and was the first national legal aid survey in the country, how this book really determined how people understand uh, the history of legal aid. And so part of what my book is trying to do uh, is extend the timeline that Professor Batlin has forced us to rethink and show how abolitionist societies also played a role in the provision of legal services. And so beginning in the late 1700s and continuing into the early 1800s, abolitionist societies in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and other big cities provided legal services to Black people escaping slavery as well as white abolitionists who were accused of assisting them. And so sometimes these organizations had lawyers who did the representation themselves. Sometimes the societies retained counsel for these defendants. And part of what I'm trying to do in this chapter and in the chapters thereafter is draw connections between race and class that people have been insisting upon for centuries and show how it's impacted uh, the trajectory of legal aid, the delivery of legal aid, and how courts have ultimately decided upon when poor people need lawyers. So in your application, you mentioned that Black, Mexican-Americans, and Asian-Americans um, were often excluded from the mainstream legal aid movement. And as a result, they formed their own legal aid organizations, some of which actually served as the genesis for the contemporary civil rights organizations that exist today. So can you tell us more about why they were excluded to begin with, but also how their accomplishments have impacted the legal aid landscape today? So really during the progressive era, when these early legal aid organizations are developing, they're catering their services primarily, but not exclusively, to Southern and Eastern Europeans who at this period are in this interstitial space of whiteness. They're, they're considered white, but not fully white. And so there's not an outright exclusion of African-Americans, uh, Mexican, Mexican and Mexican-Americans and uh, Asian-Americans, but for the most part, they're neglecting their needs in part because 
Southern and Eastern Europeans are understood as being susceptible to socialism and anarchism, which is a real concern at the time. And they're also understood as the primary candidates for Americanization, which is an important project and likely uh, unfamiliar given the current zeitgeist around immigration. So what ends up happening is depending on the cities, in some cities they're providing some services to these racial minorities. So in the annual reports in New York and Chicago, they mentioned helping some non-whites. But for the most part, they're not attending to their full legal needs. And this is happening amidst Jim Crow. And so we know that racial minorities are not devoid of, of legal needs. And so what ends up happening is these communities start looking inward. And so African-Americans develop mutual aid organizations, Mexican-Americans develop uh, mutualistas, and Asian-Americans develop their own uh, mutual aid organizations. And part of the work that they're doing is tied not just to legal issues, but they often are engaging in legal, legal representation. Their ethnic newspapers have legal advice columns. They're engaging in certain forms of know your rights trainings. And really what it's doing is providing models for how to provide legal aid when the state is not doing so, as well as mainstream philanthropy. And specifically in the context of the African-American community, many of these mutual aid organizations helped inform the the work that would eventually emerge out of the NAACP and in the Mexican-American community in LULAC. And these organizations played a big role uh, in the civil rights landscape more generally. And so part of what's important, uh, some of the important features of these mutual aid organizations was one, providing services, two, shaping the civil, civil rights landscape that will ultimately impact our criminal justice system as well as our social welfare system. So let's talk about funding for legal aid. Where does the funding come from? So um, it depends on the organization. So on the civil side, there are some organizations that are funded by Congress by way of the Legal Services Corporation. And there are some organizations that are funded on a local level as well as funded through philanthropy. So that's the case on the civil side. And on the criminal side, it depends on the state. Some states, indigent defense is funded on the state level, and some indigent defense is funded on the county or city level. But most of that is happening through states and counties on the criminal side. And on the civil side, it's a mix of philanthropy, local dollars, and if the the organization is LSC funded by way of Congress. And so earlier you said that it it certainly needs to be better funded and it's underfunded currently. Can you tell us more about how that can happen? But also in responding, I know in your application, you mentioned that there was a fellowship program started years ago by President Johnson. And your goal and hope also is to start potentially some fellowship programs. So talk more about fundraising revenues that could be increased and avenues, I guess, that can be increased, but also in terms of ensuring that the right talent is built into the system as well. Sure. So part of the story that the book talks about is that during the war on poverty, the Office of Economic Opportunity creates a program called the Reginald Heber Smith 
Community Lawyer Program. And so th this program is named after Reginald Heber Smith, who wrote this that book that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago in 1919 called Justice in the Poor. And he's, he's understood as one of the most important figures in legal aid in the 20th century. So the federal government creates this program that during the war on poverty that exists for almost two decades. And it is akin to Teach for America for poverty lawyers. And so if, what the federal government does is provide funding to talented lawyers who, talented lawyers who are graduating from law school to go work in legal aid. And the, the program over two decades has about 2,000 alums who are now partners at law firms, run legal aid organizations, help develop civil rights organizations, are law professors, politicians, and judges. And this is really an, an extraordinary moment of federal underwriting of legal services to the poor. And so part of what I'm trying to do is, is, is capture this moment, but there's a way that we might understand this as an episode in history worth replicating or mimicking in potentially an uh, area where we can intervene in the world of access to justice issues, which we know people have on the civil and criminal side. And there's a way it's been federal funding for civil legal services is only tied to that legal services corporation program that I described, and not in this other extraordinary moment where lawyers were able to engage in poverty law work that was meaningful and change people's lives. So part of what I'm trying to do is reintroduce that as a potential legislative possibility, whether it's on the federal level or state funding uh, for legal services. So for some time, South Dakota had a program where they supported people who came into the state to do poverty law work. And really what I'm trying to do in this part of the book and in related articles is to think about a role, a new role that government can play in supporting legal aid by actually bringing in the talent to do the work. So when you think about your book, you know, how do you see your project fitting into the contemporary landscape of legal aid and policy reform today? Yeah. And so I would say to most ambitiously hoping to shape legislative conversations and, and funding around legal aid. I think probably more modestly, I would say one is to bring this issue um, and history of legal aid and legal aid policy to the general reader who might be unfamiliar with it. But also part of what I want to do is speak to the many people who are currently working as legal aid attorneys and public defender offices, the people who are interested in doing this work, who are in law school, people in college who are thinking about going to law school and doing public interest work, to really show that there's this rich tradition of people who have been engaged in not only a struggle for economic inequality, but racial justice, and to show them that their predecessors were doing this work in the civil rights movement, in the progressive era, during Reconstruction, during slavery, to show that there's this rich tradition of lawyers playing a role in attempting to mitigate poverty. Great. I mean, I definitely learned a lot from reading your application, so you're already achieving that uh, that goal. You know, this is a very challenging year for so many of us for so many different reasons. And the world today is very different from the world we were living in a year ago. 
And so as I try to, you know, just garner some positivity from each of you in this new class, what gives you hope right now during this really challenging time? So I would say two things give me hope. I think the first almost counterintuitively is the role of social protests in coronavirus. And so on the former, I think there seems to be, I won't say an unprecedented, but a unique recognition of the role of racial inequality in our criminal justice system that's spawning new kinds of conversations. And second, I think the COVID epidemic has really forced the country to think about economic inequality in different ways. And we don't know how the interface of these two things are going to shake out, but at least in my lifetime, it feels like a unique recognition of these two problems that can hopefully lead to political change and new kinds of political commitments around addressing these issues. I think the second more specific thing that's tied to this project that gives me hope is knowing the history of legal aid and knowing the ways that um, lawyers have toiled, notwithstanding what seem like insurmountable circumstances, whether it be the institutions of slavery and Jim Crow, or be the budget cuts of the 1970s and the 1980s, or this period of mass incarceration that we're still reckoning with. I think the, the work that the lawyers, lawyers have done historically, notwithstanding these challenges, gives me hope that lawyers will continue to fight, even given this set of circumstances, which feel fairly new and odd and have have been um, unfortunately lethal. So my final question, and I know it's one that many writers do not like to answer, but where do you hope to be a year from now with your project? A year from now would be August. Um, I would say I would like to be wrapping up the project and going through copy edits, but also having generated excitement from the project by way of writing more public-facing and accessible, shorter work that really explains some of the work that legal aid attorneys and public defenders are doing and work that situates how they fit into our current moment. And so I would say a year from now, I'd like to feel like I'm wrapping up the book, that there um, is a personal excitement around its completion, as well as a broader popular excitement by way of hopefully Um, doing justice to showing the importance that these lawyers have uh, in our society. Well, we're excited uh, to support you this year. So thank you again for your time today, Sean. Thank you. And I'm very appreciative of the opportunity and I'm looking forward to being in conversation with everyone at New America. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org slash fellows to access my other interviews of the class of 2021.